Hi, my name is Mary. Throughout this series, we will read each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we recite Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in your judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward being, Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Make me hear with joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Deliver me from death, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. For you have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that as we listen to your word, that you would, by your gentle Holy Spirit, not only convict us and challenge us, but that you would create something new in us today. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the way that you're at work this morning. Come and have your way in us, we pray in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series through the Psalms, and we actually began uh, this series in February before Lent began, but during Lent, we've we've made an intentional point to try to pick some Psalms uh, that deal with lament, and today's Psalm, as you might have guessed, deals directly with confession, and so uh, confession is just one of those things that we we try to avoid talking about or thinking about. It's not very pleasant. Uh, The Psalms, as we've said throughout the series, gives us a kind of language for prayer. It teaches us how to address God, how to respond to God. And so when you think about prayer, you might think, what are the different ways 
uh, to pray? What are the different things we want to say? A recent study revealed that even people who don't believe in God will believe in prayer or will pray uh, at the very least in moments of crisis. So faith is almost not even required for people to pray. There's just something that if the situation is bad enough, people will pray. And what is it that we most often pray? Well, there's a popular author named Anne Lamott who suggested that the three most basic human prayers are help, thanks, wow. Now, I like that. I think that's pretty good. That about covers it, doesn't it? Help, that's maybe the most popular prayer, even if you don't believe in God. Thanks, okay, maybe that one is reserved for people who do believe. Wow is sort of this this act of worship, a worshipful prayer. That sounds good. And I, I really like that list, except that the longer I began to think about that list, I realized there's one word missing. Sorry. And maybe it's no accident that that word is missing because actually none of us really like that word. We don't want to have to say sorry. It's, it's hard enough to ask for help, but it's even harder to ask for help when asking for help requires admitting that you've done something wrong. Like help because actually I've made a mess of this. Now, we, we have four kids. Our younger two are, are eight and five, and I, I just got permission to share this story. Um, I didn't get their permission for the first service, but that's all right. They weren't in here. They're in here this time, so it's a little more. But they're, they're, they're wonderful kids. They're all four of them, wonderful kids. And, and, and very often, they'll ask for our help the first thing they do when they get up in the morning. Like, Dad! And they don't say help. They just say, I'm starving. It's like 6 a.m., you know, like you're not that hungry. I mean, come on. I'm starving. Will you make me breakfast? I've got a stomachache. I'm dying, you know. Like, okay, just give us a few moments, right? Now, once in a while, they take the next step and they realize, you know what, mom and dad are practically worthless at 6 a.m. We've got to take matters into our own hands. And so they begin to make themselves breakfast. And so one Saturday morning, about 7 a.m. or so, I would guess, we hear this crash, like, oh, dear. What's happened? And we sort of drag ourselves out of bed at 7 or whatever, you know. And we get down there, and what they try to do is make themselves oatmeal. Now, this seems simple enough, you know, bowl, oats, water, microwave. I mean, how could you mess that up? Well, turns out, if you grab the bowl from the microwave when it's hot, you'll drop it. And so we came down to a broken bowl, oatmeal all over the floor, and them with a broom sweeping it up. You know, not only have we lost a bowl, lost some oatmeal, but we've now ruined a broom, you know. And I thought, well, why did you just ask for our help? Like, well, we wanted to take care of this mess before you realized it. And I thought, this is like us, isn't it? God, help. Easy to say help when it's somebody else's fault. Help, God, the enemies, the evil one, the devil. But when it's you, we're like, oh, God, look away for a moment. Sweep this up. Why is it so hard to ask for help when it requires an admission of guilt? Psalm 51 is interesting because it is the longest expression of uh, the admission of guilt so far in the Psalms. Now, there's, there are earlier psalms that kind of hint at this, like, okay, I, I, my bones were wasting away until I confess. But most of the psalms so far have been, help God, it's someone else's fault. Help God, my enemies. Help God, the adversaries. Help God, the wicked are prospering. And Psalm 51 is this moment where the psalmist says, help God, it's my fault. Help God, I've made a mess of this. Now, you know the backdrop to Psalm 51 
It says it right in the beginning, the inscription in the psalm. It says, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had been with Bathsheba. Now, this is, this is a, a, a direct, a very specific historical episode. This is that moment where he's saying, you know, when David as the king took the wife of Uriah, all of this stuff, this is that moment where the prophet confronts him, tells him this elaborate parable about a man with a lot of sheep who stole from the guy who only had a handful, you know, a small little lamb or whatever. And David's like, that's outrageous. That guy. I should be punished. And Nathan says maybe the best line in all of the history of confronting kings. He says, sir, you are that man. Atahaish in Hebrew. You are that one. And he's like, ah. Oh. And he realizes it. And Psalm 51 is set in this backdrop of saying, this is David's confession of adultery. Except that Psalm 51 is not just in the backdrop of David's confession of adultery. Look with me at verse 18. Look what it says at the end of the psalm. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now, hang on a minute. When David was king, the walls of Jerusalem were perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with the walls of Jerusalem when David was king. What happens with Psalm 51 is it began as a prayer of confession for David's own sin of adultery, and then it gets repurposed along the way as a communal prayer of confession for the nation's sin of spiritual adultery. When were the walls in need of rebuilding? After exile. Now, you may not know all of your history. You may not be able to draw timelines and all that. That's okay. But you've heard of the exile. That moment when the Babylonians had come and they'd ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the walls and all of this stuff. And so here's a people now saying, remember when David wrote a prayer because of his own personal sin of adultery? We're, a, we're guilty as a nation of spiritual adultery because we've worshipped other gods. Now the exile was a huge thing because in Israel's story, there are two major events. Maybe in American history you'd say Revolutionary War, Civil War. In Israel's history, it was... The Exodus, when God rescued them out of Egypt, and then it was exile. But what's the difference? Well, Exodus was not their fault. Exodus was like that dirty, rotten Pharaoh, that evil Egypt. Curse him, Lord. Yeah, get him. But exile was their fault. Exile, as the prophets said over and over again, was the result of their own sins of idolatry, which idolatry is spiritual adultery. So it makes sense that they reappropriate the psalm. See, Psalm 51 is the perfect prayer to pray when you need help because of the mess you made. It's the perfect prayer to pray when you need someone to rescue you from a mess of your own making. And so with that happy introduction, let's dive in. Sin takes many forms. Sin takes many forms. And one of the interesting things about Psalm 51 is in Hebrew, there are many different words used here to describe the sin. And in fact, even in your English translations, you'll notice this. You'll notice there's words like iniquity and transgression and waywardness and evil and all this stuff. Let me just give you four of the big ones that are used in this psalm. First of all, there's a word that refers to rebellion. In some Christian traditions, you might think of this as a sin of commission. What that means is, I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I wanted to do it anyway. I did it on purpose. I'm rebelling. I'm going to do this. Okay, great. Waywardness is, is, is more of the idea of sort of drifting. Because, well, I was just sort of doing, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know how I ended up here. It just sort of it just kind of drifted here. Waywardness. And then the third kind of word here is 
failure. This is, in, again, in some Christian traditions, you might call this the sins of omission, the things you did not do that you should have done. Listen, we pray this every Sunday, don't we? It says, Lord, forgive us for the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. That's what that means, failure. There's some things we've failed to do. We should have done it, but we've left it undone. We failed it. We failed it. And then there's like downright evil. And the psalmist uses all of these words almost as a way of saying, what else you got? There's a spectrum here, but all of it requires confession. All of it needs to be confessed. There's no such thing as saying, well, you know, mine's this itty-bitty thing. The psalmist is like, let's just put it all out on the table. Okay, we got this, we got this, we got this, we got this. Yeah. There you go. And I want you to see this morning that confession is the most hopeful turn a life can ever take. And so I want to show you three things about confession. Maybe when you he- you've heard the word confession, you've had a negative picture of it. And your impression of confession is that it's this, oh, it's this awful thing. You know, I just don't want to do that. And it's legalism. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's just beat me up. And I, I don't want to have anything to do with confession. But Psalm 51 shows us maybe a different way of understanding confession. Are you ready? The first thing we need to see is that confession shifts the focus from the sin to God. Confession shifts the focus from your sin, from your failure, from your waywardness to God himself. Listen to this early on, verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now hang on a minute, Mr. David, King David. We know that it's not true that you only sinned against God. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. And if we're going to be technical here, you sinned against the whole people of Israel by failing them as their king. This is not good. How can you say against you and you only have I sinned? I think it's not meant to be taken as either or, as binaries. It's either the first Samuel account is right or Psalm 51 is right. They're meant to be taken together. And when you take them together, this is what you discover. Every sin against your brother or your sister is a sin against God. Every failure to love your neighbor is a failure to the God who made them. And so the world might say, oh, morality. Morality is defined by doing something that is harmful to others. So as long as I'm not harming anybody, pornography is okay, this is okay, that's okay, all of that, it's just fine, it's not... And God says, I don't, I, that's not how I calculate things. This is a violation against me. And so all of a sudden we realize there's no such thing as a sin that we can leave God out of. With every sin, you're going to have to deal with God. That's the flip side of when we sing those happy hymns, this is my father's world and everything in it is yours. The earth is the Lord's. Right. So if the earth is the Lord's, then our sins against creation are sins against God. And our sins against our neighbor are sins against God. And a failure to steward the earth is a failure. You see now how everything has this vertical dimension to it. There's no such thing as saying, no, 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 no. This one is just, you know, it's just a little, it's a little squabble. We're fine. And we're tempted so many times in our human interactions to say, let's just gloss over that one. You know, married couples, you get in the fight. You're like, oh, no, that's okay. We'll just, we just patched it up a little bit. And I want to say to you, it's not enough to just try to patch things up until you've reflected on how you've actually sinned against God. What if your anger toward your spouse is also a sin against God? 
And it is. What if your failure to love your neighbors in the city is also a sin against God? It is. And sooner or later, you have to deal with God. Now, something interesting happens in the psalm. In the first nine verses, the psalmist uses 12 different words for sin. Or, or sorry, uses words for sin 12 different times. 12 times he's talking about sin in the first nine verses. Only once does he mention God. Man, that's how it is, isn't it? <laughs> when you mess up, the first thing, all you can think about is, oh, my, oh, I did this. Oh, man, I did this. Oh, man, I did this. I did this. I did, oh, God, oh, I did this. I did this. You know? And then as he moves on, verse 10 through 19, something happens that shifts in the, in the focus. All of a sudden, words for sin are only used twice between verses 10 and 19. But God is now mentioned six times. Now the psalmist knows, okay, don't get obsessed with the soul. I'm so bad. Sometimes we think confession is just sort of reveling in the muck. It's just, oh, I've been so terrible. I've been so terrible. That's not real confession. Real confession will move you from your sin and move your focus to God. Real confession, it does not just sort of, oh, I'm just awful, I'm just terrible. Real confession will begin to lift your eyes up to God. And that's what happens in Psalm 51. Confession shifts the focus from sin to God. So what happens? What happens when you shift your focus from sin to God? What happens? Listen to this. The psalm actually begins with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your justice and wrath. Sovereign anger. Smite me, almighty smiter. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is the second thing I want you to see about confession. Confession comes out of confidence in God's compassion. If you're convinced that God is vengeful and violent and is fundamentally a wrathful being, you will never confess. Because you, who wants to do that? And I, listen, I know why we have this picture of God. Sometimes it's because that's how our parents were. And some of you that grew up in violent homes, alcoholic parents, and it was always this swing, and you're like... I don't know which God's going to show up today, just as I didn't know which dad was going to come home that day. So you don't want to confess because you're like, I don't know. What if I catch God on a bad day? <laughs> and the psalmist says, according to your steadfast love. There is nothing in the universe more steady, more consistent, more reliable, more dependable, more faithful than God's love for you. Amen. Nothing. Nothing in the galaxies, nothing you can search high and low. There's nothing that is more constant than God's love for you and God's commitment to you. Now, if you know that, would you confess? Yes. And this is why Moses, Moses who receives the law, Moses who we think in the Old Testament, oh, didn't Moses have this wrathful law-driven God? No. You know what happens when Moses asks for a glimpse of God's glory? What does Moses get? Goosebumps? No. He gets a voice that says, the Lord, the Lord is abounding in mercy, full of compassion. His faithful love extends for a thousand generations. This is the gospel according to Moses. That God is not to be defined by our impressions of rule-keeping and wrath. God is to be defined by his steadfast love. 
You want to glimpse the essence of God? Glimpse the steadfast love of God. So confession comes out of confidence in God's compassion. The New Testament picks up on this and says, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Maybe another reason why we struggle to believe this is because we have heard so many times preachers try to get us to confess <laughs> by reminding us of God's anger. It is true. God does get angry. Because he loves his good world so much, he gets angry when he sees destruction in it. Of course he does. In the same way that we get angry when we see how cancer can destroy parts of our body. We understand this. But as preachers, if we ever emphasize that and say, oh, I hope people will repent because they better know. We're like, wait a second, you've missed it. It's the kindness of the Lord that will lead us to repentance. It's the compassion of God. And, and also in Romans, Paul says, the wrath of human beings will never produce the righteousness of God. So in case you're tempted to sort of stand in and be surrogate Jesus for someone else and be like, let me tell you. You're like, oh, actually, that's not how Jesus would have done that, would he? <laughs> My wrath can never produce the righteousness. It, it's the compassion. A com confession comes out of a confidence in God's compassion. So what does this compassionate God do with our confession? All right. So compassion leads us to shift the focus to God. What kind of God do we find? We find a compassionate God. And what does this compassionate God do? Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the gospel in Psalm 51. This is why I don't want you for a moment to think that there's two gods and two testaments and God had this one way of, of operating when he was younger and more uptight and then he loosened up and then decided to be full of grace. This is not true. God has always been the God who wants to create a new heart in us. God has always been the God who wants to renew a steadfast spirit in us. God has always been the God who wants to put in you the same kind of faithfulness and loyalty that he displays. God has always been that kind of God. And so this word create, we said it when we were reading Psalm 51. We said it over and over again as our responsive part of the psalm because it is the most significant moment in this psalm. This is where everything turns. And why wouldn't everything turn? Because this word create is the Hebrew word bara. And it's the same word used in Genesis when it talks about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and he began to call out light and, and order the world. But see, bara is not just about God making the raw materials of the world. Stick with me for a moment. Old Testament scholar John Walton teaches at Wheaton. He says bara, in all of its usage, there's a stronger case that bara is not about the material creation of the world. It's not so much about God made the very substance, even though he did. That was assumed. That was like a given. Of course God made the material substance of the world. Of course he did. But bara is about God creating and assigning function to all the, place, all the things of the world. It's the functional creation of the world. Now, if that sounds too abstract, imagine this for a moment. If you've ever built a house, maybe off of a model or off of a plan or whatever, 
Someone else has supplied the raw materials, the lumber and the wood and all of the stuff. But you're the one, or maybe the architect first is the one that says, well, let's put a bedroom here and then a bathroom here and then a living room here and a fireplace here. And then you take another step. You get in the house and you're like, huh. Uh, curtains here, blinds there, couch here. And all of a sudden, someone else may have supplied the raw materials, but you make it a home. You make it a home. In Genesis, God does both. It's already assumed that he's the one who, who's in charge of the raw materials. Of course, he's the one responsible for the raw materials of the world. But the most beautiful thing about Genesis is that it says, and God's the one who decided to put everything in its place and assign everything a purpose. And to say, huh, sun by day, moon by night, let's have some stars here, fish over here, boom, boom. And like an artist on the canvas, God assigns everything a purpose and a place. Isn't that beautiful? Now, this is what the psalmist is praying. He's saying, God, <laughs> I've tried to do a little DIY project on my own life. And I said, see, what happened was I tried to make a bathroom into a bedroom, and I tried to move, like, the fireplace and the HVAC and all of this stuff. And, and honestly, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> and so the psalmist is like, God, could you bara this again? Could you reorder this? Could you realign this? Could you make things snap back to how they were supposed to be? This room was never meant to be a bedroom. What was I thinking? This is way too small. Could you turn this into the closet, you know? And this was not meant to be the kitchen. That doesn't even make any sense. What, what's the stove doing in the middle of the entryway? This is awful. Who thought of that? <laughs> Can you reorder the stuff? And when the psalmist says, bara in me a clean heart, he's saying, realign it, redesign it. Make it how you meant me to be. Make me how you, I mean, look at that. You look around in the world around us, there are people desperate to try to make themselves something. You know? <laughs> Kids, when they're younger, they wear, they wear costumes to play. But adults are the same, right? Just our costumes grow up. We're trying to make ourselves, oh, I'm, I'm a professional. I'm godly. I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. And finally you get desperate enough that you're like, you know what, God, I cannot make me who you made me to be. Only you can make me who you made me to be. So bara in me a clean heart, oh God. Do it, God. Do it, God. Create in me a clean heart. Only you can do it. And then in verse 13, he says, look, here's the result. When you do this, when you restore to me a willing spirit, he goes on, he says, then, then after you bara a clean heart in me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Listen, you know what these three verses say? They say that the result of God's new creation work is Wisdom, I will teach transgressors your ways, and worship, I will sing your praise. Now, this is exactly what human beings were made for. They were made to reflect God's wisdom into the world, 
Genesis 1, 20, let's make them in our own image and let them rule. In other words, let them extend our wise and loving order into the rest of creation just as God has ordered the world with his wisdom. Proverbs says, the foundations of the earth are established by your understanding and your wisdom. Just as God has done that, then let human beings be the one that extend your wisdom into the world and let human beings be the one that reflect your worship and your praise back up to you. We were made to reflect God's wisdom and worship. And what the psalmist is saying is, God, when you snap things back, when you make me who you made me to be, then I'll be full of wisdom and worship. That's the result. Do you want that? Are you hungry for that? When I think about my life, I think, God, that's what I want. I can't do that. I mean, I might be able to change the paint colors or the curtains, but I can't do that. I can't do that. Only you can do that. And so the New Testament takes this hope and brings it all the way forward. And Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, not any kind of word for sin, not waywardness, not rebellion, not failure, not evil, Jesus who knew no sin became sin. So that there's nothing that he cannot rescue you. Jesus went to the cross and died. And on the third day, when the Father raised him up, Jesus, the risen one, finds his disciples. And he says, y'all are a mess, aren't you? You're betraying me. I heard, I heard about that. You did this. You did, what, are you, what are you doing? What's going on? Come, here, come over here. And then he says, guys, <laughs> there's a new genesis happening. A new beginning a new Genesis. And just to take you all the way back to the start, you remember how in Genesis, God breathed into the dirt of clay and called Adam to life. So Jesus, on the doorstep of new creation, summons his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. New creation begins now. And so Paul says it. He says, oh, I can hardly contain myself. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, he is new creation. He's part of the new creation now. The old things have gone away. And look, behold, new things have arrived. Paul is saying, look, I know, I know. There's a lot more. One day the earth will be made new. One day the heavens will become new creation. One day your bodies will become new creation. But hey, you know what? Let's get in on this now. Let's get in on it now. If you're in Christ, something has been remade. The Spirit has been breathed, just like God breathed into Adam's nostrils. Jesus said, receive the Spirit. And new creation all of a sudden happens. Are you hungry for that? I know I am. When you live and you fail and you fall and you think, how do I ever shake this or that or this or that? God, can anything become different? Confession opens us up to God's work of new creation. That's the third thing. Confession opens us up to God's work of new creation. I want to get in on that. And this isn't the kind of thing where it's like one, on, one and done, check the box. It's in the Psalms because it's a prayer we pray all the time. 
And if you think that maybe the New Testament decided to ditch that idea of it, just remember the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Forgive us our sins, Lord, as we forgive those who sin against us. <laughs> we're we're going to need you to go ahead and keep realigning, redesigning, recreating. Keep doing this, God. So you bow your heads this morning. Maybe some of you are at the place where you're so desperate for it. You're like, God, I, man, I've tried to hide that for a while, but I've tried to get by. I've tried to not deal with you about this. I've just try to deal with others about this. But, see, the thing is, friends are great. Community's great. Counselors are awesome. All of that's necessary. All of that's part of the journey. But only God can bara in us a clean heart. Only God can renew a right spirit. Only God. Let's just sing that old chorus, creating me a clean heart. Just sing that. Thank you.